grandkids. You know, my wife is getting old. I'm not. But <laughs> I have this identity crisis. What, what am I now? You know, my grandfather, my father, what am I? And so I, I'm like all dads and grandfathers. We just ignore it and go watch sports. <laughs> but things change. And so sometimes do our identities, who we are, change. You guys are going to be going through a identity crisis of some sort in the next few years. Some of you are graduating. What are you now? Are you no longer a college student? I am a, you know, name your major, name your job. So we're going to take a look about that, okay? And we're going to go back to the Old Testament. That's that Old Testament before the New. Old, New, okay. Got that understanding. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 34. Sorry, I'm still adjusting this. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 8, and we're going to talk about the death of Moses. Now you're like, oh, what lifting is that? We're going to start. Chapter 34, 1 through 8 says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtalia, and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and again, the plain. That is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, This is the land for which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite death quarter. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed, and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. For the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. So, has anyone ever asked you this question? What is the longest trip you've ever been on? The longest trip that you've ever taken? Um, and that's kind of a hard question because it kind of depends on your definition of long, doesn't it? Now, I have driven 22 hours to Maine with small children in a small Honda Civic. That was pretty long, and I came back with no children. Just kidding, I, I bought them back, okay. But it doesn't, it doesn't even compare to the trip that Emil, and I wanna make sure I get the same right, and Liliana Schmidt of Switzerland set out to undertake. They traveled to over 180 countries while driving 460,000 miles in the same 1982 Toyota Land Cruiser. And according to the Guinness Book of World Records, that is the longest trip. There's a record for us for that. Now I can see how that trip happened, to be honest with you. I can see Lillian, the his wife, begging Emil for miles to stop and ask for directions. And being the man that he was, he said, that's okay. I know where I'm going. I trust me. Just remember the next bit, you'll see that this is a shortcut. And 460,000 miles later, they're in the longest trip. That's how that stuff happens, okay? But imagine traveling nonstop for 40 years. 40 years of no place to call home except what you have on your back or whatever the oxen is pulling in the cart. See, in the Old Testament, we find the Israelites on this 40-year road trip. And now Moses has come to the end of his life. Still looking pretty good, according to the scripture. He's full of vigor. Looking good at the age of 120. God takes him to the top of Mount Nebo, 
And it was a beautiful sight, a wonderful sight to this faithful servant of God that he could stand on that mountain that was about 2,700 foot of elevation and see the promised land. See, God gives Moses the panoramic view that extends 120 miles north past Tyre, Thomas, Sidon, and then 120 miles south to Negev, just past Cage Barnea, and all these names you're like, oh, what is that? It's a long ways, okay? 60 miles to the south, to the sea, and all the land in between. This is what he shows Moses. And no one, and, you know, I just took my glasses off because I can't see up close. You all look wonderful now, by the way, because I really can't see your faces that well. But <laughs> no man's eyes can really see all that. Okay, I definitely couldn't. But God's eyes are very sharp. And Moses gets to see through the eyes of God. He gets to see what God sees and what a sight to behold. And he's been looking forward to this day for 40 years. 40 years, and he was almost there once. Almost. What a word. Almost. Now, the definition of almost is detailed in my old Webster's Dictionary that I have on my desk. I like quoting books. I don't Google everything. I do like it. It says it almost means not quite, very nearly, almost. I almost won the race. I almost finished my meal. I almost completed my task. I almost passed that exam. My thesaurus gives me another word for almost, failed. Reminds me of the, an old hymn that we used to sing back in the day at church. It was called Almost Persuaded. Now, we would only sing the first, second, and last verse of any song. I don't know why. Uh, I never knew any of the third or fourth verses of any song because we just skipped over them. But I looked up the fourth verse of Almost Persuaded. And I don't know if you even know this song. Okay, it's old school. Almost Persuaded. It says, Almost Persuaded. Harvest is past. Almost persuaded. Doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, that bitter wail. Almost, but lost. My goodness. Who would even write that for a song? You know, it's almost persuaded. Ew, all but lost, you know. It's a little depressing little verse at the end of the middle of the song. Almost. You were almost persuaded. You almost believe, but you're not so welcome to do. Especially what it's saying, a strong dose of reality. You're almost there. <coughs> so as Moses stands up there on the promise, looking down at the promised land, we must confess that no man had ever lived such an event-driven life as like Moses had. I mean, except our Lord Jesus Savior, <laughs> Savior Jesus. But Moses' story reads like an adventure story, an action movie, uh, unlike any other conceived at the point to the history of man. And even now, it's a story not only of God's almighty power, but God's presence in his people and in an individual. 120 years before this hour, before Moses is standing on this mountain, he was born into slavery in Egypt to parents of, of a priestly tribe of Levi. His mother said that he was a beautiful child. One mother doesn't say it's a beautiful child. I mean, they could be the ugliest babies in the world, and the mother believes it. 
constituents. So we go with you know what the mother says. Yet Moses' mother ended up being proven correct in her view. Stephen, later in the New Testament, who was being inspired by the Holy Spirit of God in Acts chapter 7, 20, says that Moses was lovely in the sight of God. So who's going to argue with that? We'll just say he was a beautiful child. Discussion ended. So she puts this beautiful child and to save him from death, but the Pharaoh had ordered by making a little basket of reeds and floating down the Nile River. And lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter picks up the basket. She took one look at Moses and said, Oh, what a beautiful child. She adopted this beautiful child, put it, named him Moses, gave him such a superb education, and a great house to grow up in, meals, all this other good stuff of the day. But despite growing up in the king's household, in Pharaoh's household, we know from events in the New Testament, specifically Hebrews chapter 11, that Moses identified with the people of his birth, the Israelites. That's a very important distinction. He identified with the Israelites. If Moses was undecided, torn, or half in, half out, I'm, I'm over here today, and then I'm over here now, it would be difficult to be the instrument to be used by God and what he had in mind for him. God required, God requires commitment. You just can't ride the fence. Okay. This is cool. This is, of course, certainly, I would say, the way for Christian life as well. You cannot ride the fence. You are either with Christ. Surrender to him totally as a bond servant, or you are as comfortable as if you were riding a fence. And sometimes it definitely feels like a garment wire fence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul reminds us while we were once fences, we were once sitting on the fence, tangled in the barbed wire of life. But that's no longer the case. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 11. 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 11. And such were some of you. Some of you were fences. Some of us are still fences. Some of us haven't even seen the fence yet. Okay? And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then later in the chapter, same chapter, verses 19 and 20, says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's one way or the other in the Christian life. We like to try to walk this, the middle of the road. We like to sit on the fence. And so it's you know, one or other is not good at all. Or it is good. Your life must be. Be as for Christ, as Peter said in Acts chapter 4, and verse 12, he says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which you can be, that can be given among men, but you must be saved. It's just Christ. Now Moses knew who he was, he's an Israelite, and who he belonged to, he belonged to God. And when he stuck up for one of his fellow brethren, one of his fellow Israelites, by killing the Egyptian that was beating him, Moses suddenly found himself at odds with the family that actually raised him. Word got back to Pharaoh, Pharaoh signed his death warrant, 
And so he did what every other man probably would have done at the time. He ran away. I run away. I'm running. I'm getting out of here. And he runs all the way, hightails it out of Egypt, runs all the way to Midian, which is pretty far away. And what usually happens to uh, guys, we get uh, sidetracked. Uh, Moses was smitten by a beautiful desert princess. And all of a sudden, he decided he wants to stay in Midian. Um, he married her. He became an organic farmer, which is basically means he raised sheep out in the wild. Okay, before it was cool to do that, and he settled down to an easy, comfortable life. He's forty years old. I've got a mate now. I've got a wonderful wife. I've got some sheep. What more can he ask for? My wife grew up on a farm. I didn't get sheep when I married her. I don't really still have sheep. So that's, Moses got a better deal than I got. Okay. I had to pay her father for being married. No, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but for 40 years, he tended his flock, raised his family, and life was good. And just as it is in our lives, right when we think we have it all figured out or made very comfortable, sit back and relax, we have this comfortable life, the unexpected happens. In Moses' case, it was a burning bush. Now, some of you may have known that story. God came to him in this bush that didn't burn up, but then he spoke to him. See, God directly intervened in his life and gave him a task that only Moses could do. God gave him a purpose. Now, we should be very surprised at the way God uses us in his ministry to this lost world. He is a very creative God. While we may not see a burning bush on campus, well, I mean, I guess after Saturday night you might have seen a burning bush on campus and walking towards mattresses and everything else, but that's the point. While we may not see a burning mattress, I mean, a burning bush, where's it all stuck here? While we didn't, or hear God calling from us from this bush. Now, if we were burning mattresses out here because the great baker and God started calling us out of the burning mattress, I guess that would be equivalent to, that's okay. But he, doesn't always just talk to us like that, but he is actively seeking us out to give you a purpose, to give us a purpose. Now, I would never dream that I would have been here at the University of Tennessee as a campus minister, not even on my radar. Never crossed my mind until I was approached by somebody who I respected as a friend in a conversation went like this. Hey, Glenn, you should consider serving at the CSF. And I said, hey, Tim, no. <laughs> not doing it. Been there, done that. I don't do that anymore. And after a few weeks, God worked on me, worked on my life. And here I am. Now I know every word to Rocky Top. Because it's home sweet home to me. <laughs> but I would never have dreamed that. Now I can imagine as Moses was shown the beautiful promised land up there at the end of his life, the land that he strived for as God's loyal and faithful servant, they thought back to the time when God spoke to him through that bush. And I can imagine that it was on that mountaintop, he realized his journey did not begin at the burning bush, but from the eternal plan that God had set up for him and put into motion for him. I can imagine he stood there and thought about that trip. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and 40 years of wandering the desert. And I wonder if he thought about the excuses that he made to God why he wasn't the person to leave the Israel. In Exodus 3.11, he told God that he was personally unfit for the job. Like, really? Who am I? That's what he said. Who am I? 
that should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? How many times has our Lord heard that from us? When he calls us to go help our roommate or to invite somebody or to serve somebody. How can we say, who am I? It's not for me. I wonder if you thought of the excuse of hearing the unbelief of the people and the excuse of the lacking eloquence. I can't speak. Or the many times pleading with God to send another messenger because, well, God, I just can't do it. You got the wrong God. You got the wrong girl. I can't do it. I believe Moses would be joined by all of us because, let's face it, we wonder the same thing. Who am I? You got the wrong person, God. Who am I? And then we hear God. God promised and delivered to answer all. He answered all of Moses' excuses. In Exodus 3.12, he promised his divine presence and he delivered. In Exodus 3.13-14, he promised divine authority of God and he delivered. In Exodus 4.2-8, God promised empowerment and he delivered. In Exodus 4.14-16, he promised that Moses would have human cooperation and God delivered. See, it is impossible in our time to really that we have here to go through all the events that Moses experienced that led him to view the promised land from Mount Nebo. There are many positives and many disappointments. Many heartache moments that he had to deal with. When you study his life, the greatest struggle he had was in the beginning. The struggle of self-doubt. Who am I? All of God's great problems. And leaders repeatedly said, Who am I? Joshua, who had been with Moses for from the beginning and witnessed the power of God, seemed awed and overwhelmed when asked to take over for Moses. In the first chapter of Joshua, which is the very next, as God is giving instructions to Joshua, this is what Joshua, Joshua says. We can see the self-doubt creeping in. Joshua 1 9, he says, The Lord says to him, I mean, to answer the self-doubt that Joshua's having, the Lord says this, and probably a strong voice. Of course, if God speaks, it has to be strong. Oh, anyway. He says this, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So basically he said, Have I not commanded you? Did you not catch that part, Joshua? Uh, what have you been doing? Have you been, you know, seeing this for the past 40 years that I've been with Moses, and now I'm going to be with you? See, God shouldn't have even had to say that to Joshua. Like, what was he thinking? He should have jumped right in and said, yes, let me have it. But he had self-doubt. And you can, see, you can go through this wonderful book and see example of example of what God has done. Gideon said, I am the least. Who am I? King Saul hides. Isaiah said he's a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah said, I am too young. Shepherds, fishermen, tax collectors, there's a whole group of people that gave him excuses, but yet he's still using them. Oh my God, to be at the University of Tennessee. I'm an Ohio State University fan. We won't go there. But why am I 18? I can't do that. Who am I? Why don't we just like that? I just like that. 
I make excuses. I deny. Let's look at the 120-year-old Moses standing on Mount Nebo with his creator, viewing the beautiful promised land that he's not allowed to enter himself. He's not allowed to go in. We see a very happy man in your life. A man that will die happy because he is cleansed the promised land. You say, well, how does that make us happy? You can't be there. But he sees, he sees the promised land. Of course, that's strictly in my opinion. He doesn't really say that he's a happy man, but think about it. You've been going through all these years and then you get to see. You can stand there and be in and look at it. He is standing with his creator, by the way. He is standing with God, looking at the end goal. Could it be anything better than that? Standing with God and Jesus? And, and I cannot think of anything better. And he also is standing knowing that later, when in the, in the transfiguration of Christ, that he will be standing with Jesus. So, therefore, I believe Moses died a very happy man. Now, you can say that Moses standing on the mountain 3,500 years ago. That felt a journey for every one of us. God revealed in the momentous story of creation how all the life and history began. The terrible fall, how God would send a redeemer through a woman. The great flood, how patriarchs were guided for the preparation of the people of God, his own choosing. How the house of Israel ended up in Egypt by God's plan until Moses came along and taken them out by the Nile River. I wonder if God showed Moses real man game that Jesus did. I don't know. It began as a fullness of time when God sent his son born of a woman under the law that Moses instituted of God in order that he might redeem the burden of us by failing failing to the law. And I want you to remember this point. And became adopted as sons and daughters of God. All the promises, all the prophecies fulfilled in Christ the Messiah. From Mount Nebo to Mount Calvary, not just Israel, but the whole world, everyone, has been brought to the most important vista of all mankind. We're given a view of the promised land, unless we see it through the cross or the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will not see it at all. Not most. See, Jesus invites us to stand with him to view that promised land. He wants to see just how beautiful and wonderful it is so that we will do all we can for him on our short time on this earth. We can't do anything to acquire it because it's only grace that we are saved. Through our faith, repentance, confession, baptism into Christ, we accept that invitation. God stood with Moses and showed him this promised land because Moses stood with God. Moses knew beyond a shadow of a doubt who oversaw his life. He would not have him any other way because God demonstrated it so many times in his divine love. And Christ stood for you and me. He stood in our place at Calvary. He gave us liberty, he gave us freedom from sins, oppressions, <coughs> and everlasting hope that what we could not obtain through our own efforts, he has shown us in heaven and demonstrated. 
and demonstrate his divine love to us. Who am I? A child of God. I'm an adopted son and daughter of God. I am not the person that screwed up Saturday night. I am not what my major says I am. I am not defined by that grade that professor gave me. I am not defined by my path. I am not defined defined by God as the Son of God. Who are you? Who can you be? A son or daughter of God. That is your identity. That is who you are. Nobody can take that away from you. Nobody. When we know who we are and where we stand, Oh, there's going to be troubles. I mean, Moses had ups and downs. But he knew whose he was and what he was there for. You see, when you know that, sometimes that professor can't find me up there. I'm here for God. That is who you are. So if there's nothing else that you got out of any of this, remember who you are. Son or daughter. Almighty God, we thank you. Almighty God, doesn't even got it. Thank you. Our words would fall so short of what you've done for us. You've given us an identity. And I'm, because I'm a son of God, it doesn't make me any different from people around me except I have chosen you. That's my identity. And some of us have not chosen that identity. We want to be defined. That's what we, we want to be. Our, our soul craves that, and you have answered that for us. By sending your son to die for us. So Lord, I just pray that we'll remember that. We walk across the campus or when we're in classes that no, you got this. This is not defining me. Lord, I ask that you protect these students. Physically, very things in the line. Protect them mentally, Lord. A lot of anxiety, a lot of issues, a lot of problems that they have to deal with. Protect them spiritually. Let your word shine through them. In your name we pray. Amen.